This is The Rounds Table. Hello, Rounds Table listeners. Welcome back to another exciting show we've got to you this evening coming from the UK. So my name is Freddie Frost. I'm a cystic fibrosis fellow at Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital in the northwest of England. And it is my pleasure to be joined once again by my good friend Alex Picard, who is an emergency medicine trainee in South London. Thanks for the introduction, Freddie. Uh, absolute pleasure to be back again for, I think, is it our fourth? Fourth or fifth, certainly, yeah. No, it's a, fourth or fifth yeah. on the on the rounds table, so... Uh, they fly by. Absolutely. Great, well, let's get down to it then. Alex, why don't you tell us what your article is this evening? Okay, Freddie, so I have picked the Eclipse trial, which is a trial that was published in The Lancet in April 2019. It's a multi-centre randomised control trial comparing the effects of levetiracetam to phenytoin as a second-line treatment for status epilepticus in the paediatric population. So the study showed that levetiracetam was not superior to phenytoin in the termination of status epilepticus. However, the authors of the paper have concluded that taking into account the safety profile of levetiracetam and the ease of administration when compared to phenytoin, that it should be considered as an alternative. Okay, well, that sounds pretty interesting. I am very happy to say that I've never had to reach for the second line agent and a status epilepticus in a child. That must be pretty terrible times when it gets that far. So, I mean, tell us a bit about why you picked this article and why is it important in the sort of context of our existing knowledge? So I think it's a very important article because there's been a lot of research comparing the two drugs, but it's mainly all been in adults. And again, due to some of the points that I just made there, it's, it's you know, I think that the both the paediatric emergency medicine consultants and paediatric consultants, they have, if possible, wanted to use it in their armory as a potential drug for status epilepticus against phenytoin, which is, as we know as clinicians, is quite a dirty drug with lots of side effects and if can be avoided, I think is a good thing. But there were very few trials with direct comparison to the efficacy of both drugs and they were sort of they weren't powered to a high enough power and it was just there was a hole in the literature basically to comparing those two drugs and I think anecdotally some physicians had already actually started using it and sort of going off piste of the algorithm the APLS algorithm and you know so anecdotally you know people had had good experiences with it um, the other thing that they wanted to look at was that I think from my experience from the APLS algorithm there were lots of patients who were potentially being tubed very early and just phenytoin was being avoided completely. So they were missing out that. So they were giving the two doses of the benzodiazepines and then going straight onto intubation with an RSI and just not giving phenytoin. And I think the main reason for that was because of the difficulty of the administration, the calculations of the drugs, drawing up the vials and the sort of and just the preparation. It was easier to go straight to an RSI. Okay. Well it sounds like sort of one of those scenarios where clinical practice is sort of outstripping research in terms of the pace of things, and it certainly sounds like there's a question to be answered. So what were the methods they used to answer that question? So the Eclipse trial was a multi-centre randomised control trial, and it took place in 30 emergency departments in the UK. These were normally reasonably big centres, mainly secondary and tertiary centres, and it was supported by the Peruki Collaborative, which is the paediatric emergency research in the United Kingdom and Ireland Collaborative. Bit of a mouthful there. Fine. And who were the patients in the study? 
Um, so the patients, obviously, it's a pediatric study, so they were pediatric patients from the age of six months to 18 years. These were patients who were deemed to be in convulsive status epilepticus and requiring a second-line treatment. So for our listeners out there who are not from the United Kingdom, the APLS algorithm is what we follow in terms of the treatment and management of seizures in the emergency department and of status epilepticus. So once it's deemed that a seizure has begun, we will wait five minutes during the convulsion. Then an initial dose of a benzodiazepine will be given. This is either lorazepam at 0.1 milligram per kilo or buccalmidazolam or rectal diazepam, which are both at 0.5 milligrams per kilo. After this first step, we will wait for 10 minutes and if the seizure has not ceased, then a second dose of benzodiazepine will be given. If that still does not terminate the seizure and that, that it's deemed a state epilepticus, then a second line agent will be used. Now, the current guidelines at the moment is either phenytoin or phenobarbitone is given, depending on whether the patient is already on phenytoin. But normally, if they're not on phenytoin, they'll be given phenytoin and with the developments in new drugs such as Kepra, you know, the question was posed that could this be used as a in that second line part of the algorithm. So in terms of the inclusion criteria for the patients, these are patients that are aged six months to 18 years. They've got not convulsive status epilepticus and requiring a second line treatment. In terms of exclusion, so patients with absent seizures, myoclonic seizures, or a non-convulsive status epilepticus or infantile spasms, they were all excluded other exclusion criteria included those patients that were suspected to be pregnant, had contraindications or allergies to Kepra or phenytoin, renal failure, or they'd actually already received a second line anticonvulsant before there was an opportunity to, you know, to randomize the patients to either side of the trial. Those patients who were also made it to the point at which they randomized the patients to either phenytoin or Kepra and then their seizure ceased, they then were excluded from the trial. So further to that, just talking a bit about the randomization. So the patients randomized in, in a random variable block of three or four in a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, this was computer generated. They were packed in heavy duty cardboard envelopes that the clinicians couldn't see which arm they'd been randomized to. However, because of the nature of the way in which you prepare the drugs in terms of drawing them up, they were unable to blind the physicians from what drug was being given because you basically couldn't, because they're, they're very different in terms of the ways in which you draw them up, it's virtually impossible to, and because of the length of the infusion when it's given, Kepra being a lot quicker to give than phenytoin, it would be very difficult to blind the nurses preparing the drugs and the doctors. Sure, yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, so, I mean, the age range is pretty wide there, six months to 18 years. What was the population like in the study? So the median age in both arms was 2.7 years. So it was mainly toddlers, but just to break it down a little bit further. So in the six months to the under twos, in terms of the population, Freddie, just breaking down the groups, the median age was 2.7 years in both arms. So it was really the sort of toddlers that we were looking at. Further to that, in terms of the population, the gender, it was very well split down the middle. So in the Kepra arm, it was 49% male, 51% female, and the Phenytoin, 54% male versus 46% female. 
in terms of the types of seizures that these patients were having. So they were either generalized tonic-clonic seizures, generalized clonic seizures, or focal clonic seizures. And in terms of the causes of the seizures that these patients were experiencing, they were either febrile convulsions, seizures on a background of pre-existing epilepsy, a first afebrile seizure, CNS infections, intravascular events, or traumatic brain injury, but definitely predominantly they were febrile convulsions or seizures in pre-existing epilepsy. Okay, great. So what were, what were the interventions that they actually used in the study? So the intervention was, once the patients had been randomized, was either levetiracetam at 40 milligrams per kilo, and that was administered over five minutes with a maximum dose of 2.5 grams. So that was actually, just to mention, that was quite a rapid infusion compared to normal. The the guidelines prior to this were, although people in departments have been infusing at that rate, the advised guideline is sort of 15 minutes. So that was a lot quicker. So it was interesting to see from the outcomes, whether that made any difference in terms of side effects and things like that from the Keppra. And phenytoin, that was administered over a minimum of 20 minutes in a dose of 20 milligrams per kilo, maximum dose 2 grams. And the maximum infusion rates were dictated by the milligrams per kilo calculation. And patients who did not respond to either of those treatments were then subsequently treated in the next part of the APLS algorithm with RSI with thiopentone. Okay, fine. So what were the primary outcomes that they were interested in? So the primary outcome was the time from the randomization to each arm of the treatment to cessation of all visible signs of convulsive activity. So no rhythmic clonic activity. This was judged by the treating clinician. So it wasn't that the sort of patients were videoed and then they looked back and then did the timing. It was from the point of randomization to when the clinician judged that the seizure had terminated. Okay. And what about any secondary outcomes they were interested in? So there was a few secondary outcomes that they looked at. So they were looking at the need for further anticonvulsants to manage the, the state of epilepticus. They looked at the, obviously the number of patients that needed to proceed to RSI, the number of patients that underwent critical care admission, and they also looked at serious adverse reactions to the drugs. So that included death, Stephen Johnson syndrome, rash, airway complications, cardiovascular instability, extravasation injury, and agitation. Okay, fine. Well, I think I've got a pretty good feel for the study. Why don't you tell us what the main findings were? Yeah, so in terms of the study itself, so there were 1,432 patients that were assessed for eligibility who came into these departments with stasis epilepticus. Unfortunately, there were 1,028 patients were actually excluded. And this was mainly for, for either mainly for not meeting the criteria of, of inclusion, and but also there were fifty patients that were not adequately randomised, and then there were three that had incomplete data. So you were left with four hundred and four patients that were eligible for randomisation. So they were allocated to pretty much fifty fifty to the to levetiracetam and phenytoin. And once that various patients had been lost to exclusion for various different reasons, you were left with one hundred and fifty two in the Kepra R and 134 in the phenytoin arm. So moving on to the sort of the primary findings in the study. So convulsive status epilepticus was terminated in 106 patients, which was 70% of children in the levetiracetam group and in 86, which 64% in the phenytoin group. 
So the medium time from randomization to the cessation of convulsive status epilepticus was 35 minutes in the Kepra group and 45 minutes in the phenytoin group. And that was with a hazard ratio of 1.20 and a 95% confidence interval of 0.91 to 1.60 and a p-value of 0.20. Another point which we will, I just want to add, which will come on into the discussion as well, is that it was interesting that the time from randomization to the commencement of the second line agent, so from sort of the patient being randomized to the drug being administered, was 11 minutes for Kepra and 12 minutes for phenytoin. Interesting point that we will come back to in the discussion. Okay, yeah, I look forward to discussing that. What about any of those secondary outcomes that you mentioned? So from a few of the important secondary outcomes that, that I've picked out, that the authors of the study have also picked out as well, is that so there was one patient who, after receiving levetiracetam, followed by phenytoin, died as a result of catastrophic cerebral edema. However, they would felt that this was unrelated to either of the treatments, and there wasn't any other details as to what the patient was admitted with and why they were in status. It's difficult to extrapolate why that had occurred. There was also one participant who had received phenytoin who had a serious adverse reaction, which was hypotension considered to be immediately life-threatening, and that is a potential side effect of the drug. And there was also a patient that had increased focal seizures and decreased consciousness considered to be medically significant, which was a suspected, unexpected, serious adverse reaction. Bit of a mouthful that, but that was uh, that, that, and that's been that was they they were all declared by the authors. They were very open about t- these patients and and what had happened to them. Okay. Fine. So overall, no significant difference between groups in their primary analysis. What caught your eye about the results in this study? So I think just as you said there, Freddie, so insufficient evidence to demonstrate superiority. However, from the feedback from the clinicians and the nurses involved in the study was that overall levetiracetam was much easier to make up and to draw up and give to the patients than, than phenytoin. Now, this comes down to the fact of just, I think, just drawing the drug up itself. So, and the fact that how rapidly the levetiracetam can be given. So they've demonstrated here that it can be given over five minutes and there didn't seem to be any, you know, adverse reactions to it being given at a more rapid fusion rate than previously recommended, which was 15 minutes. The phenytoin needs to be given over a minimum of 20 minutes. It requires an inline filter. There's lots of dilutions required. It needs to be, it can, the drug itself cannot exceed 10 milligrams per mil. So it's, you know, in a high fidelity pressure situation, it's, it's more difficult to draw up. Just going back to what I mentioned about the time from randomization to commencement of the second line agents, I think that my takeaway from the paper is that I think that the teams involved in this study were probably very well trained in terms of drawing up the phenytoin. So in a real world situation, I'm not convinced that 11 minutes versus 12 minutes is an accurate So not only have you got a drug that is longer to infuse, you've actually got something that takes a lot longer to draw up. So if you add those together, I just think the Kepra is a lot easier to draw up. It can be given quicker. And I just think the uh, nurses involved in the studies were probably extremely well-trained and very slick in drawing up the phenytoin. But in real-world situations, high-fidelity pressure situations, it's probably not quite as quick as that. Other things just to be aware of as well that you know, patients who are already on phenytoin and potentially might get a second dose of phenytoin, like a top-up dose in stasis epilepticus, there's the risk of the 
cardiovascular toxicity. And when you compare this to Kepra, there was no events observed where sort of serious adverse events observed where a patient that was already on Kepra. So there were a lot of the patients involved in this study were already on Kepra as their prevention for seizures. And by giving them a very high dose bolus of, you know, another dose of Kepra, there didn't seem to be any adverse reactions or anything like that. So that was a very promising secondary outcome from the study that we've shown, basically, and with rapid infusion as well. Fine. So do you want to summarise your main learning points from this, Alex? Yeah, so I think that it was a very well-run pragmatic trial. I think that we can take away that Kepra was not superior to phenytoin, but it's definitely a potential alternative. It's easier to prepare, it's easier to administer, and it'll be interesting to see whether in the next review of the APLS guidelines, whether they'll be adjusted or amended. I just I checked just before recording this just to see when it was last amended, and that was December 2018. So it'll be very interesting to see whether there's any changes made Another point just to make as well is that I think that if anyone wants to do any further reading regarding this topic, there's another trial that came out at the same time called the CONCEPT trial that was similarly looking at levetiracetam versus phenytoin, but from Australia and New Zealand in emergency departments. And their results were very similar to this trial. It's a slightly differently structured trial, but another a, bit, a good bit of further reading. Excellent. Excellent. So... Bringing me to the end of my discussion, we will move on to your paper for this week. Freddie, if that's okay? Yeah, so I'll get started. So my paper this week is the effect of acadinium bromide on cardiovascular events and COPD exacerbations in high-risk patients. Uh, The lead author is Robert Wise, who is from Johns Hopkins in the USA. And it was published this month in JAMA. Okay, great stuff, Freddie. So... Do you want to tell us the main message of this article and and tell us a bit about why you chose the article itself? Sure. So the bottom line of this article is that in a multi-center double-blinded placebo-controlled RCT, acridinium was non-inferior to placebo for cardiovascular outcomes. The reason I was particularly interested in this article is that uh, long-acting muscarinic antagonists, or LAMAs as we call them, are recommended by pretty much all major guidelines and they form a key part of management for people with COPD. Now in the last few years and actually going back a number of years there's been some simmering literature suggesting that some of these drugs, uh, some of the short-acting muscarinic antagonists as well as long-acting muscarinic antagonists might be associated with increased cardiovascular risk and adverse uh, cardiovascular outcomes. Now most of the data supporting the, this idea that there's increased cardiovascular risk associated with these drugs has come from retrospective or observational studies. And the European Medical Agency and I believe the FDA in the United States have reviewed all the prospective trials out there and they've ruled that there isn't really any evidence of a risk whatsoever. However, what you've got to remember is that the people with significant cardiovascular disease and therefore cardiovascular risk are often the ones who are actually excluded from prospective COPD studies. And hence, there could be a heavy selection bias obscuring any effect in prospective studies. So I thought this study was interesting because it answers that question that has been there for, well, it tries to answer that question that's been there for a little while about cardiovascular risk and cardiovascular events in people who are starting muscarinic antagonists. So I think that's a great point you've made there at the end, Freddie. You know, when you're applying a trials with randomized control trials with drugs to your patients, that the, the devil is in the detail of the, you know, the selection of the patients, the population that they use in these trials. So 
as you said, most of your COPD patients that you're going to be prescribing these drugs to will have, you know, comorbidities, cardiovascular risk factors and disease, and that the outcomes from those trials, these kind of patients in real world conditions were not included. Absolutely. And I think that's the premise of the study, really. So how they sort of went about looking at that is that they designed this multi-center double-blinded randomized control trial that was across 522 sites. And the study participants were people who had moderate to severe COPD and people who exacerbated with moderate to severe COPD. So the sort of more severe end of the spectrum. But they also had to have significant cardiovascular disease. And they defined that by having a history of cardiovascular disease, so stroke, coronary artery disease, or pulmonary vascular disease, or having two or more risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And those are your classic risk factors, your age, your diabetes, cholesterol, hypertension, those sort of things. Now, people were excluded if they were already on triple therapy. And so essentially, most of these patients were on some sort of dual therapy. It was mainly lab or ICS, either in individual doses or in a sort of fixed dose combination. And well over half the patients were also receiving short acts of beta agonists as well. Overall, about 12% who had already received a LAMA at some stage, but the majority were essentially LAMA naive. And the intervention really was just adding LAMA or placebo to the standard care. So, Freddie, do you want to take us through the primary outcome for the trial? Sure. So this was a non-inferiority study, and it was based as a major adverse cardiovascular events, or MACE, as the outcome. And... MACE in this study was designed as cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI or stroke. And the study was powered to rule out a hazard ratio of 1.8. Now, just to explain that, that means that to be sure that LAMA was non-inferior to placebo, the upper confidence interval for the estimate of the hazard ratio between the two in terms of this MACE had to be less than 1.8. And 1.8 was a number that wasn't plucked from thin air. It was actually a threshold that's been picked previously by the FDA in other drugs, uh, such as diabetic drugs, when trying to compare what's a meaningful or acceptable risk of cardiovascular events in placebo-controlled trials. So, Freddie, do you want to tell us about any interesting secondary outcomes in the trial? Sure. So there was a number of secondary outcomes that were included. Probably the most interesting ones, and we will talk about these later, are the efficacy outcomes. So as well as being a non-inferiority or safety trial based on MACE, there were some efficacy outcomes such as exacerbation rates. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but just to say that there was a nested efficacy trial built into this study, which was a non-inferiority trial. So at stages, the clinical design gets quite complicated, but uh, we can talk about that in a bit more detail and the pros and cons of that a bit later on. So moving on, Fred, do you want to take us through the results of the study and uh, the main findings? Sure. So there were approximately 3,600 randomized from 500 centers around the world. Dropout rate was quite high. About one third in each arm did not continue the treatment until the end of the study, although these patients were included in the intention to treat analysis. In terms of the primary outcome, so MACE, there was 3.9% of patients in the uh, intervention arm, so the LAMA arm had a MACE, compared to 4.2% in the placebo arm. Now, the upper range of that confidence interval, that hazard ratio was 1.23, so well below 1.8, that was the predefined limit, and hence the authors concluded that LAMAs were safe in people with COPD and cardiovascular risk. Very interesting. 
did they look at as to why the dropout rate was so high, Freddie? Or was there No, they didn't there's not really that much data about it. Now interestingly they did predict in their power calculation that there would be a 30% dropout rate. It looks to be about 35%, so slightly higher than they were thinking, but they were uh, actually already predicting a quite high dropout rate. Now, I haven't quite got to the bottom of why that is. I mean, essentially, you're asking someone who's already taken inhalers to take an inhaler. You'd think that if the people in the lamar arm might have even noticed some symptom, you would hope that they got some symptomatic benefit as well. So the reasons aren't clear to me why the dropout rate was quite high but they were equal in both arms which is kind of reassuring great stuff so swiftly moving on to the discussion freddie are there any interesting points that you wanted to make about the study anything that caught your eye so yeah so starting from the top i mean a number of the authors on the top line and including the senior author are actually listed as being employees of astrazeneca and that immediately makes me raise my eyebrows Saying that, they have been quite transparent throughout and very upfront about the protocol changes that were made halfway through the study. Essentially, the study wasn't meeting enrolment targets, and so they had to change the criteria. But otherwise, the protocol is there for everyone to see. It's transparent, and a lot, most of the analysis were all pre-specified. The other thing that we touched on slightly there is the significant dropout rate. But again, as I said, the dropout rate was equal between the placebo and the inhalers, so it doesn't seem to be an inherent problem with uh, taking a LAMA. I guess one of the problems we always have with non-inferiority studies, particularly those sponsored by pharmaceutical companies recently, are that they are designed to assert non-inferiority without there actually being any superior benefit. I think we touched on this before in a previous podcast. Now, actually, in this case, even though LAMA's well-established and you would think that automatically assume that there is a benefit from them, the authors actually nested that efficacy study into the clinical trial design, and that did show that exacerbations were reduced. So the authors seem to have already thought about some of the limitations of the study and included that efficacy study, which did actually show that, as well as just being non-inferior in terms of safety, they also managed to show efficacy at the same time, even though that has been shown before. So I think that's to be congratulated, because it's nice to see that sort of study design where you're answering uh, two questions in one trial, essentially. So Freddie, a few interesting points you've made there. In terms of listeners, our practice, and you know, how can we apply the findings of this study to day-to-day practice, and what patients would they be applicable to? So yes, that's an interesting point. So in terms of generalizability, let's think about those MACE rates that we saw in the study. So we saw approximately 4% in both arms. Now, if we think about the placebo arm, they essentially haven't received any medication. So 4% is essentially your baseline MACE rate in that high-risk cardiovascular population. Now, 4% is probably a bit lower than what you might sort of traditionally think about a truly high-risk cardiovascular population where you might expect sort of a, a MACE rate of around 10% annually. So I think what we're probably more looking at is a moderate cardiovascular risk sort of population. So this study, aren't for me, answers the question quite nicely in terms of people with moderate cardiovascular risk, maybe even mild cardiovascular risk as well, that lambs are safe, but we still can't be 100% certain of the risk in the more high-risk cardiovascular population just yet. Great. So for your sort of your GPs, your respiratory fellows, this is a, sounds like a very good study that just gives you a bit of bit more makes you a bit more informed in terms of making good decisions for different drugs for your patients especially your ones that are at their highest sort of highest risk of cardiovascular disease yeah i think that's exactly it i mean if, if we're talking about whether or not it's practice changing or not i don't think there's that many people that are truly 
withholding lamas from people with moderate cardiovascular risk, maybe in the very, very high, extremely high risk, people might be considering it. But day to day, certainly in our healthcare setting, I don't think that's the case. So it's more of a sort of practice reaffirming thing and reassuring us that what we're doing at the moment is safe. So I think in summary, knowledge is power. And I think that the more evidence that you have, the better, isn't it, Freddie? So uh, great stuff. So I think that brings us to the end of your discussion. So moving on to the good stuff segment, uh, I think that you've got a real treat for us today, Freddie. Is that right? Yeah, so there's actually a few articles that have been kicking up this week in the news, um, certainly in this country. And this all came from a case report in Nature Medicine, which is entitled Engineer Bacteriophages for Treatment of a Patient with Disseminated Drug-Resistant Mycobacterium Abscessus. The lead author was Helen Spencer from Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. And basically it tells the story of a 15-year-old girl who's had a post-lung transplant for cystic fibrosis who developed a really nasty mycobacterial skin and lung infection, failed a number of systemic treatments that we usually use in that setting, was really sort of going the wrong way clinically from the sounds of it. But anyway, they managed to get some license to import some bacteriophage from a university in America. And after a few doses of IV bacteriophage, things picked up dramatically. Phage certainly are exciting old treatment strategy, really, that's been attracting a lot of research interest recently. I didn't know much about them recently, but I know there's a good podcast out there on the JAMA website, which really gives a good history about phages and where they've come from and how they were used in the past and uh, it's certainly a good starting point for listening if you want to learn more about phages either before or after you've read the case report in nature medicine i'll have to download that one for uh, my long run on a on a sunday freddy sounds very interesting yeah no it certainly is well i think that uh, brings us to a close alex uh, it's been an absolute pleasure yeah, thanks once again, Freddie and the uh, Kieran and everyone at the Rounds Table team. It's a pleasure for, for you to continue to invite us to uh, be on the podcast. Many thanks. Great. Bye now. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca/slash Rounds Table. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table or on Facebook at facebook.com/slash Rounds Table Podcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.